Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. And you can follow along as I read it. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's all pray together for a brief moment. God, we thank you just for this, um, this time and this word. We thank you that uh, issues that were going on in the ancient world and various churches like the Church of Galatia, we get to benefit from uh, as we read the words uh, written to them from the Apostle Paul. And we know that your word is something uh, that's not just, um, it's not just words on a page, but uh, it is your very word to us. And so help us to receive it as such. Uh, may the Spirit open our eyes, open our hearts, constantly changing us, forming us, and helping to see Christ clearer uh, in this time and in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, what we've been doing as a church this season is we've been going through a series on fear. And we've been saying that fear is this very powerful force that usually holds us back from being faithful and fruitful in our lives. And so we talked about how, uh, last week we talked about how fear and shame are actually very uh, intertwined and how a lot of our responses in life and a lot of our negative responses in life may actually be rooted in things like shame and the fear of shame. And today what I want to do is I want to take that a step further and look at a very specific fear that is tied to shame, and it is the fear of man. Now, what is the fear of man? The fear of man is a phrase that the Bible uh, uses to describe basically putting your trust in man. And in our vocabulary, what we might call that is, we might say it's peer pressure. We might say it's uh, being a people pleaser. Uh, we might even say it's codependency. And uh, those words are all different, but they share the same foundation in terms of where it comes from. And basically the foundation is this. It is the idea that people are powerful enough to give you what you need, or people are powerful enough to destroy you. Uh, in other words, what people think about us, what people say about us, uh, what people do to us has enough power to give us honor, to give us value, to give us security, or it means that people and what they think about us, say about us, and do to us have enough power to dishonor us, devalue us, and destroy us. And so what it's actually doing is it is ascribing God-like qualities, powers that only God himself has to people. 
and it's saying that people can either save us or condemn us and destroy us. Now, this past week, I came across this passage in Jeremiah 17, and I thought it was a very beautiful picture that I want to convey to you. And in Jeremiah 17, God says this uh, to Judah, I believe. He says, Cursed is a man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And then what it goes on to say is this. It says, a man who trusts in man is basically like a shrub in the desert, which basically means there is no fruit that comes from a shrub in a desert. But then it says this, blessed is a man who trusts in the Lord, and he is like a tree planted by water that thins out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What is the purpose of this entire series? The purpose of this entire series is we want to be like the ladder. We want to be like that tree planted in water. We want to be like that tree that doesn't shrivel up and die when the sun is out and the heat is scorching. Uh, we don't want to be like the tree that shrivels up and dies when there's a drought, but we want to be like the tree that flourishes even in the midst of heat and drought. And in order to do that, you can't trust in man but you have to trust in the Lord. Proverbs says this, that the fear of man lays a snare. And what that means is there's something very deceptive about how the fear of man works in terms of how it distorts uh, our reality and the way we see life. Yeah, I was thinking about my own issues and my own issues with the fear of man. And uh, you know what I started to think about? I started to think about dancing. Uh, here's why. You know, I, I never grew up dancing. Uh, I never found dancing to be super fun. Uh, I never watched people dance and tried to learn their moves. I never even went to a school dance. All throughout uh, middle school, high school, even college, right? They would have semi-formals. Never <laughs> went to any of those things. And uh, no surprise, so I'm a terrible dancer. You know, I'm very stiff. Um, sometimes, you know, when I'm dancing, some people just relax and go with the music. I'm, I'm thinking about what my body is doing. So, uh, you know, I think about my feet. I'm like, all right, is my feet going according to the rhythm? But then when I do that, you know, the rest of my body goes go stiff and I'm just not moving the rest of my body. So I'm like, oh, I got to move the upper part of my body, right? And, uh, you know, I, I just, um, I don't look very good when I dance. And, you know, I'm, I'm 36 now. You know why I'm happy to be 36? Because I don't have to go to clubs and lounges anymore. <laughs> I remember in my 20s, everybody, you just go to a club and a lounge every time there's like a birthday, right? And if you care about the person and you want to celebrate their, their birthday, y you got to go to these kinds of things. And these kinds of places would just make me really uncomfortable because I don't like to dance. So I would be the guy, uh, I would stand next to the bar, I would be holding a drink, and I would kind of pretend I'm busy, right? So I can't go to the dance floor. And you know what I would do? I would strategize, and I would drink my drink very, very slowly. Because, you know, if I drink it too fast, then I have nothing in my hand, then I have no excuse not to go on the dance floor, right? So I'm just standing by, oh, come on, Sam, why don't you dance? Oh, I, yeah, I will in a minute. Let me just finish this, right? That's what I would do. You know, I remember one time I was in uh, Philadelphia during seminary, somebody's birthday. We went to this, like, club or lounge, and what are people doing? Everybody's <laughs> dancing again. So I got tired of just doing that thing, of just sta standing at the bar by myself. And uh, you know what I did? No, I didn't go to the dance floor. This is what I did. Uh, I went to the entrance, and uh, I started talking to the bouncer, right? <laughs> I was, like, so bored. I was like, let me just talk to this guy. And, uh, you know, he was really cool, and, uh, you know, maybe he was happy to talk to somebody because he's there by himself. And uh, we talked for maybe, like, one or two hours. <laughs> 
And, uh, you know, sometimes there'd be like crowds of people coming through. And uh, so I, I offered to help. I said, hey, you need some help? He's like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so he's like, check their ID, make sure the birthday is after this date. And uh, if it is, then stamp their hand. So I was like, all right. <laughs> so people came. I was like, let me see your ID. <laughs> I put a stamp on their hand. It's kind of a power trip. It felt a little bit good. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, after a while, you know, this was a couple hours. And uh, after a while, like, my friends came out. They're like, what the heck are you doing, <laughs> right? They see me stamping people's hands. You're such a weirdo. I was like, yeah. I didn't know what to say. But, you know, deep in my heart, why was I doing that? I, I didn't want to dance. Now, you know what I was afraid of? You know why I didn't want to dance in front of people? I'm actually not afraid that people would make fun of me because um, at least there's some comedic value in that, right? Uh, you know, but you know what happened in the past when I would dance? Sometimes people, they would see me dance and they would come and they'd try to teach me <laughs> some moves <laughs> and teach me like how I should move my body and what I should do. And uh, they showed pity on me, right? And I was like, wow, how bad must I be that people <laughs> on their own initiative would come and try to teach me to dance? And it just made me feel like um, I didn't have people's respect. So that's, if that tells you a lot about who I am and the issues in my heart. I'm not actually necessarily looking for approval, but here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for respect. I want people to respect me. And if I feel like uh, I do something and I'm going to lose people's respect, then that's a fear of men at work, and I, I won't do it. Now, isn't that a pretty distorted way of living life and looking at the world? Because at the end of the day, in, in the final analysis, who really cares if I can't dance, right? Who really cares? Nobody cares. But to me, in my eyes, it's like the most important thing. Fear of man, that's how it works. It's like a snare, and I fell into it. And the consequence is you don't get to enjoy <laughs> those kinds of nights with friends. And that's, I think that's the thing about the fear of man. It takes away your ability to enjoy God's good gifts in life. You know when you're at work and you're constantly worried and thinking about how other people perceive you? It's hard to enjoy the work that you're doing. When you're constantly worried about, let's say, a significant other and what they think about you, it's really hard to enjoy the relationship. If you're a parent, when you're a parent and you're constantly worried about how people view you as a parent, well, it's hard to enjoy your kids, right? If you place your trust in people's judgments of you, in people's opinions of you, if you give people that kind of power, it is really hard to enjoy the good things in life. Now, as I've gotten older, I'll tell you, I don't care as much uh, about how I look when I dance, and the evidence of that is some of you have probably seen me dance at this point, right? <laughs> Weddings. My wife loves to dance, so now I'll, I'll go to the dance floor with her. And, uh, you know, the ironic thing about dancing is, uh, you know, when you care less about it, uh, and when you stop thinking about, like, how you're perceived, you relax more, and you actually become a better dancer, right? And, uh, you know, I think that probably applies to many things in life. You probably live life better. You probably do things better when you're not driven by people's opinions. Uh, if you're so filled with fear uh, of what other people think about you, then uh, you're probably going to be difficult to deal with. But if you're not concerned about that, I think you'll probably be a better son and a better daughter. You'll probably be a better spouse. You'll probably be a better parent. You'll probably be a better colleague at work because you're not thinking about other people's judgments. And here's the ironic thing. Even though you're thinking about other people's judgments, what that ends up 
doing to you is it makes you more self-absorbed and you become more insecure about yourself you become more uncomfortable and in some cases you become even unwilling to do things to serve other people the fear of man what it does is it forces us to live in a courtroom rather than on the dance floor what kind of person enjoys living in a courtroom and being on trial all the time that's what the fear of man does now, as you think about your own issues with the fear of man, uh, it's probably going to be different from mine, especially I've seen many of you dance, and many of you are good dancers, so uh, it's probably not that, but I want you to consider some of the following questions. You ever do something because uh, you feel like you need somebody's approval or somebody's respect? Or do you ever refrain from doing something because you're afraid of what that person is going to think about you? Uh, are you somebody maybe you hesitate to pray in public settings because you don't want to sound stupid? Do you find yourself overcommitted to things because you have a hard time saying no to people? Do you avoid confrontation because uh, you don't want people to react to you in a negative way if you confront them with something? Do you routinely pad your accomplishments and your achievements because you're worried that people won't think you're good enough? Or... Do you routinely hide your accomplishments because you're worried that people will think you are better than you actually are and you can't stand those high expectations? Do you buy a lot of nice things to show people that you're successful and you make a lot of money? Or do you pretend that you don't make a lot of money because you don't want people to think you're like one of those elitist snobs? Do you pretend to understand something like instructions or a joke and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get it, or ha, 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 that's funny, because you don't want to look stupid for not getting it. Do you pretend nothing bothers you in life so you don't look weak? I could ask question after question after question, but let me stop it there. And uh, if you can relate to any of these things, then guess what, friends? You have an issue with the fear of man. If we can overcome the fear of man, not only do I think we'll enjoy life more, but conversely, I think people will also enjoy us more. <laughs> but that's not the ultimate point of this sermon or this series. And what I want to do is go back to that imagery. Think about that imagery in Jeremiah 17. It's about being faithful to God so that we can bear fruit for him. That's why we need to overcome the fear of man and everything else. Because then we will be a fruitful people. Even when the heat comes, the scorching heat, even when there's a drought, even when we go through those kinds of seasons in life which are inevitable for all people, we can still be fruitful because our trust is in the Lord. So I want to look at this passage in Galatians 1 because I do think it's a good example of what the fear of man can do and why it's so important to, to overcome it. Uh, you know, the beginning of Galatians is actually really interesting, especially if you compare it to Paul's other letters. Because you know what Paul does? He gives a greeting, right? He says, grace and peace to you, which is kind of like the equivalent of like, dear people of Galatians. Uh, and then after that, what he usually does is he gives a word of thanksgiving and he says, I thank God for you. Um, so for example, you know, even in the letter to the uh, Corinthians, in the first letter, and the Corinthian church is a very dysfunctional congregation. Even there, Paul says something like, I give thanks to God for you. But if you look at this, Galatians 1, there's something that is conspicuously missing. There is no thanksgiving. And after the greeting, Paul 
gets into it right away with rebuke and correction. And what he tells us is that there is a problem in Galatia that is so severe that he has to bring it up immediately. Look at his first words in verse 6 after his greeting. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, just to get a little bit of context in terms of what he's talking about, you can find it in places like the book of Acts. There was these false teachers uh, that were going around, and they were known as Judaizers. And according to places like Acts chapter 15, verse 1, uh, they were saying this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. Now, that's a very different message than what the Apostle Paul was preaching in terms of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the message of these Judaizers was basically this. Yes, you need the gospel message. Yes, you need Christ. But you also need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law of Moses. Now, for a Jewish people, <clears throat> circumcision was important. It was an identity marker because it, was, it symbolized uh, the covenant that God had made with those people, with Abraham and his descendants. And therefore, it was one of the early theological controversies in the early church. But Paul's very insistent in saying circumcision is not necessary in order to be saved, but it's only God's grace given to us through the death of Jesus Christ upon a cross that saves. And anyone who says otherwise is preaching a distorted gospel, a perverted gospel that diminishes what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. Now, if something like that is going on in a church, what do you do? Right? What do you do? You could say, eh, um, does it hurt? Eh, is it worth confronting them? Right? Paul's saying, yeah, I got to call them out. And he immediately gives a strong statement of correction because he sees that their reception of another gospel is not just a uh, you know, oh, believing a, a different kind of ideology. But if you look in verse 1, the implications of verse 1, their reception of another gospel is tantamount to deserting the one who called them in the grace of Christ. Now you have to wonder, how do people get to the point of receiving a gospel message that's perverted and distorted and not true? And I would say the fear of man probably plays a big role in that. <clears throat> you know, let's for a moment, let's take this out of the theological realm and let's just ask this. Um, think about how people may come to espouse certain beliefs in this world. And it may very well be rooted in the fear of man. If you are part of a community and everybody in that community is saying this to you, it is morally repugnant to eat meat, you might find yourself starting to believe it because you don't want to be the dissenting opinion. If everybody around you is saying it is morally wrong to dance, I would join that group. No, I'm just kidding. You might start to believe that, right? And isn't that what happened in uh, very legalistic Christian fundamentalist churches? You see, it's easy to judge the merit of the truth of something when you're outside of a community that believes it, but when you're a part of that community, it is hard to go against the grain of what everybody else believes. 
And you know, the more personal the topic, the harder it is to be the dissenting voice, which is why the pursuit of truth requires courage because sometimes truth means going against the grain and being the dissenting voice. But if you don't want to stir the pot because you want the approval of the community that you're a part of, then you're going to be, end up being a byproduct of what everybody around you believes. Now, here's what happens in the Church of Galatia. Just imagine it. You have some false teachers who come in. They're called Judaizers, or they're called a circumcision party. They enter the community, and they say, hey, yes, the gospel, what Paul preached is true, but he forgot one thing. You also got to be circumcised. Uh, read the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Read what happened with Abraham. You have to be circumcised. And maybe what people uh, in the community do is they go, oh, yeah, uh, I'm looking at places in Genesis. Okay, it, it seems to make sense. And then more and more people start to believe it. And then all of a sudden it's like everybody believes it. And somebody says, hmm, I'm not sure if that's true. That's not what Paul says. But, you know, everybody believes it. And if I stand up for uh, the truth of the gospel, what are people going to think about me? What are people going to say about me? Right? This is all, of course, fictional, but you can imagine the kind of dynamics that would take place in a community like that. And so Paul hears about this. He, sa- he hears that the church in Galatia started to receive this distorted gospel, and he has to confront it. And he confronts it right away. Now, I think you can really respect Paul's courage here because uh, he says it very clearly. He's not looking for the approval uh, of man here because if he were, then he wouldn't be a servant of Christ. It is one thing to confront uh, another community, which you see all the time with like all these factions and political uh, groups and things like that. Uh, it's easy to confront another community, but when it comes to confronting your own community, it's a little bit harder, right? When you confront your own community, you take a lot of risk. You risk being branded as a traitor, as an enemy, which means you lose the support of your very own community. Isn't that how it works in life? Not just in politics, but other spheres in life. Paul, what is he doing? He's confronting a church that he planted, that he has close ties with, and that takes courage, friends. You know, my, uh, I had a professor, and he used to say this about Western culture. He said, you know, in the West, truth is an aesthetic. Uh, it's not that truth is unimportant in Western culture, but what he meant by that is people in our culture tend to stand on truths that are based on what is pleasing to the eye, right? What is pleasing to the community, what is pleasing to the trends of the culture. And uh, I think that's maybe part of the reason why reasonable arguments aren't as effective as they used to be in terms of persuasion, because truth is not necessarily about pursuing that which is reasonable or objective, but if truth is an aesthetic, it's about uh, believing in something that is pleasing to us. Uh, In the Christian faith, truth is not an aesthetic, but truth is based on God and his word. And therefore, when something doesn't align with what God says, we are the ones who are supposed to change. Truth as an aesthetic means this, that when you don't like something, then you change the truth so that it becomes much more pleasing and palatable to you. Now, in a culture like that, fear of man fear of man has even greater power and influence over what people believe, right? Now, let me bring it back to the church. I think a lot of us probably will struggle with telling people hard truths, 
uh, as Western norms move further away from biblical norms and values, a lot of us will probably struggle and have a hard time professing Christian beliefs uh, because we're not going to be approved by others. But it's going to take courage to be able to stand up for the truth of the gospel and to be a servant of Christ. And if we want to be like a tree planted in water that can withstand the scorching heat, we have to overcome the fear of man. And so how do we do that? How do we overcome this powerful force called the fear of man? And I think we see a hint of the solution in verse 10. And Paul says this, If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that verse there, it tells us that there's a dichotomy. You cannot please man and please God at the same time. You just can't do it. Jesus says something similar, that you cannot serve two masters. Bob Dylan says something similar. You got to serve somebody. It could be the devil or it could be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Our fears are connected to who we serve as our master. You know, if money is your master and if you're a slave to money, your deepest fears are going to revolve around not having enough money or not making enough money. If uh, career success is your master, your deepest fears are going to revolve around failure. If approval is your master, then your fears are going to revolve around rejection and trying to avoid being rejected. But here's the thing. When we become slaves to these kinds of masters, and Paul says this in Romans 6, the conclusion is death. Spiritual death. How do we get freedom? In the West, you get freedom by becoming your own master. But I think we're starting to see that that doesn't work either. How do we get freedom, true freedom? The Bible's answer is this. Submit yourself to a better master. Serve a better master. And who is that better master? It's the one that Paul tells us about in verse 4. It's the one who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. True freedom is to submit yourself to that master, to the one who loved us enough that he had given himself over to us by dying upon a cross so that we could be set free. Paul would make this explicit later in Galatians 5.1. He says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you live for the judgments of other people, you put yourself at their mercy. You make yourself, uh, you submit to a yoke of slavery to those people when you gauge your worth and your value based on them. But if you submit to the one who died for you, you live with assurance, friends. You live with the assurance that you are infinitely valued, that you are infinitely loved, that you are infinitely found to be worthy not because of what you do, what you say, what you think, not because of what you achieve, but you are made infinitely valuable because of what Jesus achieved for you and what he gives to you through the cross. It doesn't matter <clears throat> if someone thinks you're stupid in view of that. The God of the universe receives you and accepts you and loves you and approves of you because of Christ. Does it matter if someone thinks you're stupid? 
Does it matter if uh, someone doesn't respect you in view of that? Right? Did you lose respect for me? Who cares? <laughs> right? Who cares? Does it matter if someone finds your faith annoying or offensive? No. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter. Why live in the courtroom of public opinion or human opinion? Why live in that courtroom when God has invited you and welcomed you and rescued you out of that courtroom into his very presence? You belong to the one who gave himself over for you so that you would be accepted and made beautiful in his sight. And when that fear of man rises within you, you're submitting yourself to the wrong master, to the wrong yoke. Know the true master and taste the kind of freedom that can only be given and not earned. Taste that freedom, friends. This is just part one. I think fear of man is so big, I got to talk about it again next week. So we'll continue next week. Let's pray.